We've moved at this point out of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, which were at least the first three, not exactly happy passages, talking about how we're all under the wrath of God. And then chapter 4, Paul spent time defending his position scripturally from the Old Testament. How can we say justification by faith is the right thing? A lot of of doctrine, a lot of information. And then here, Paul is going to spend some time in these these first 11 verses of chapter 5, just celebrating, celebrating and worshiping and exulting in what God has done. And this got me thinking, there, there exist in the Christian church, you can divide the church many different ways, but you've got more or less two kinds of people that I've come across. You've got one kind of person who really majors and emphasizes doctrine, study, the teaching of the word, having the proper information and understanding God and doing things right. And then on the other side, you've got somebody who really emphasizes worship and celebration and prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit and the experience with the Lord and the relationship with Jesus Christ. You get the first person alone and they're probably going to talk to you about the cool doctrinal thing that they've been learning lately. You get the other person alone and they're going to tell you about that awesome prayer time they had and how God's been speaking to their heart and how wonderful it is. And Most of y'all probably just identified with one of those groups. But it's important for us to know that being just one or the other is a problem. Without sound doctrine, if you're going to be person number two, you love to pray, you love to sing, you love worship, you love experiencing God, but you find the studying of the Bible, you find sound doctrine kind of tedious. Maybe you came from a place where it was tedious. <laughs> it was dry as a bone, and the Lord got a hold of you, and you're, you're never going back to that. But if you don't have that, you're going to have all this incredible energy and zeal for the Lord, but you'll have zeal without knowledge, which the Bible says is a bad thing. And you can start saying things or believing things that are not grounded in Scripture, so you'll have all this passion that is going to lead you astray. And it can become self-serving, where it's really about what I want, and you really emphasize my relationship with Jesus. That's not how I worship. That's not how I pray. But then if you're the other person, and all you are is right all the time, but you don't have any heart for the Lord, you don't have any dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you can give me ten reasons why we can have a relationship with Christ, but you don't really have one to speak of. You can demonstrate your marriage certificate, but you you don't really have much of a relationship with your spouse, so to speak. And it's all about knowledge. It's all about filling your head. And the worship music at the beginning is is just sort of boring to you. And it's not such a big deal if I show up late because the good stuff doesn't start until later. And, you know, okay, closing song, I can beat traffic. I can get to the car and I can uh, catch whatever Bible teachers on the radio at at this time. And that can lead you toward an atrophied spirit where you have no connection with God other than the things you know about him. And it can lead to some serious pride where you look down on people that experience the Lord. And you consider all you have to say about worship music is, is criticism. And how, yeah, well, you know, that, that, that's probably not the best way to phrase it doctrinally. And it's not a very balanced song and things like that. And, and anytime you see somebody exulting or celebrating or shouting or weeping, you, you just get uncomfortable. Neither one of those things is good. Do you see that? Because sound doctrine can inspire your prayer and your worship. When you know what God says, that turns you loose to let your zeal and your spirit go to chase after the Lord. And if you know the word well, that ought to make you more full of joy and full of love. It keeps your study alive. And Paul sets us a great example in this passage of head and heart working together. And we need that. And some of y'all are heart people. And you're like, yeah, those, those people really need to know to just loosen up and love Jesus. And the rest of y'all are like, yeah, well, you need to tell those people to calm down and read their Bibles once in a while. <laughs> and I'll just go ahead and go there. Calvary Chapel as an association, and I'd say this church specifically, we tend to lean towards head people. Because we teach verse by verse through the Word of God. And that's a good thing. But if that verse-by-verse teaching doesn't make you just in love and enraptured with Jesus Christ, we're doing something wrong. So, let's look at this passage and let Paul set us an example of how we rejoice in the truth. Let's back up. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again, and then we'll go real slow here, one phrase at a time. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Well, the first word of chapter 5 is therefore, which should cause you to ask, what is it there for? Sorry. And you look, <laughs> you look back. What, what, he's drawing a conclusion. He's looking, what are the things he said before? And now he's about to say something. And we don't have to really look far because he immediately says, since we have been justified by faith. Now, by doing that, he's summarizing everything he just said in chapters 1, 2, 3, and especially 4 which was demonstrating from the scriptures that salvation is not by works, it's not by the law, but it's only by the free gift of God, which we receive through faith. You can have righteousness, remember this word, credited, accounted to you, that in the ledger of heaven, the Lord is going to add righteousness into your column by faith. You can't earn it, but the good thing is you don't have to earn it. So since all that is true, therefore... He gives us three things, three blessings that he's going to say we have as Christians, as saved. And this is describing the new state of, as a believer. If all that is true, if Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 are true, then these three things he's going to run through are also true. And if you have done what chapter 3 and 4 talk about, which is you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then these three things are true about you. Isn't that exciting to think about? We're not reading about some hero of the faith. We're not reading about some distant time. We're talking about right now, talking about you. So let's read these. Number one, we have peace with God. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And of course, through our Lord Jesus Christ. I might add, we can only have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other option. Peace with God. Now, there's a lot of different uses of the word peace in the Bible. You can talk about having peace that God gives you where you're not racked by doubts and by fears. You can talk about peace between nations. But this is very specifically peace with God or peace between you and God. And of course, we have to remember that we are at enmity with God. What does enmity mean? Well, it sounds an awful lot like enemy, doesn't it? God is your enemy if you are in your sins. You are under his wrath, as the Bible says. That was all what chapter 1 was about. And chapter 2 was him coming in, remember, and saying, and don't think that because you all go to church or you've been circumcised or anything, that you somehow escape that judgment. You're all under wrath if you are descended from Adam. And we're going to get into that in a few weeks in chapter 5 here. But we are at enmity with God. And you might say, why? Well, because you are a carrier of a virus called sin. You are spreading evil throughout the world. And you say, not me. Oh, yes, you. I like to use this as a definition of sin sometimes. Sin is anything that makes life worse. Have you not ever been that for somebody else? Have you not ever been somebody who made someone else's life worse well, I didn't mean to. Well, that's hardly the issue, is it? It happens. We make life worse. We do things. You know you're not who you're supposed to be. You do things that make you go, why did I do that? That wasn't right. Well, that's right. Can, how can God have people like that living in his world? And now they want to build spaceships and go colonize other planets and spread that to the whole rest of the world? You're an enemy of God. God is against us because whatever is not godly is wicked. And so, well, I'm not just like God. Well, everything in you that is not just like God is wicked. It's an invasion in the world. It's a virus in the program. So you are an enemy of God. And this is important for us to know. If you're not in Christ Jesus, yeah, God made us all, but you don't get to walk around saying, well, we're all God's children and, you know, God just loves everyone. Yeah, he does, but you are an enemy of the Lord our God. And we've lived at peace in our own homeland for so long, it's very hard for us to conceive of being enemies with anybody. And sometimes even in, in national politics, it gets frustrating because we say some people can't even conceive of the idea of somebody hating somebody else or being against somebody else. Well, we just got to talk to them. I'm sure we can work it all out, right? No, not you and God. You are at enmity with him. But Jesus Christ fixed all that. 
He, as we read before, by his death, propitiated your sin. He was that mercy seat that covered your sin. By his death and his blood, he became a perfect sacrifice to take the penalty that you deserve. All the judgment and wrath that was coming at you, Jesus took that on the cross. He paid the penalty in his body. And he offers us now free forgiveness. That's pretty cool. That's what we call grace, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5, 19-20. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's peace with God. Being reconciled. When you've had an argument with somebody, you need to be reconciled. You haven't spoken with one of your children or one of your parents for a long time. You want to be reconciled. And that's where we were with God. But here's the thing. God took the step to initiate reconciliation. We can get real pouty, can't we? If somebody does wrong to you, you say, well, they can come around and apologize. I'm not addressing any specific situation. I'm saying that's not what God did. God said, I'm going to step in and I will be the one to initiate this reconciliation at great personal cost to myself by sending my only son, Jesus, to die on the cross. That's the love of God. And now, if you have received that blessing, if you've been justified by faith, you are at peace with God. You're no longer an enemy of God. God's not looking at you, waiting for you to mess up. You're at peace with him. You can freely come and go, right? It's not like it's wartime and you've got to watch out because the sniper's going to get you. No, no, no. You're at peace with our Heavenly Father. That's the first blessing for those who have been justified by faith. Peace with God. Second, we have access into grace. Verse 2 says, through him, which is, of course, Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So again, this access, he, he hits this over and over, is by faith. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can only believe it and trust that God will give it to you. Into grace. That might sound kind of odd. Into grace. He's talking about a new domain under which you live. And I believe he's using a, a royal metaphor here. You can all, he uses legal metaphors throughout Romans. He uses others. But he's describing the new sphere of life. You're now under grace. Because before you were under the law. And because you were under the law, whether that was Moses' law or anybody else's law, you were also under wrath. You were under the wrath of the king. And if you were going to be dragged before the king, it was going to be off with your head. But you're not under the law anymore. You're no longer held to a standard. That standard determined God's favor to you. How well have you kept those Ten Commandments? Keep them, and the Lord said, I will bless you. But break them, and I will curse you. That's the Moses' law. And Romans chapter 2 made it very clear. It didn't matter what law it was. You hold up any standard you want. You can't keep it. Nobody in here has kept a diet program perfectly the whole way through. So well, that's a silly example. It is, but what's the point? You can't keep any rule, even a silly rule like that. They're trying to tell kids, all right, everybody sit still and be quiet. It's amazing to watch them. It's like the eyes are moving and it's like, I, I could be quiet and I could be still until you told me not to. And that's kind of what it's like with us, isn't it? But now, your, your favor with God is no longer determined by your performance. Isn't that great? That God does not stop loving you or stop treating you well when you mess up into grace. This is favor. The favor of the king is upon you. The best example of access here is from Esther. Y'all know this. This is Esther chapter 5, verse 2, when Mordecai told Esther, you've got to go talk to your husband. You've got to tell him to, that this law that's going to have all the Jews killed has got to be repealed. But Esther was not, she was one of thousands of wives this guy would have probably had. And she was the queen, but she was just the queen. And she said, I can't go into the king's court without permission. And if I do, I could be killed. And that's a description of where we were before Christ. That you can't come into the presence of God because his favor is not upon you. Instead, his wrath is upon you. So she said, if I go in there, I could be killed. And for you as an unbeliever, you definitely will be killed if you go into God's presence. But Esther 5 verse 2, you know the story. She was very brave. She stepped out and she went. 
It also says she decked herself out to look as beautiful as she possibly could. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he said, oh yeah, Esther. She won favor in his sight. She won favor. The word is chen. It's an Old Testament word and it can be translated grace. She won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. She was accepted in his presence and given favor. It's the same thing with you and me. That we come before God not by our own boldness and brashness and certainly not by our own works or our own beauty. We come into the Lord's presence because of Jesus Christ. He's taken us by the hand and led us into his Father's presence. And now God has not shown his wrath. He's not shown his judgment. He could have had Esther beheaded, but he didn't. The Lord could have had you judged and destroyed, but he didn't. Instead, he's chosen to show grace to you. Your life is under God's pleasure. He delights in you. He doesn't count your sins against you. Is that liberating for somebody in here? Well, I messed up again. Oh, God must be mad. No, no, no. You have access into grace in which you stand. You stand in the grace of God. He delights in you. God is pleased with you. He's happy with you. And he says, we're not going to worry about your sin anymore because I've given you my righteousness. And the only way to appropriate that is by faith. And some of y'all are having a hard time believing it right now with me talking to you. But the more you can believe that and the more you can have faith in that, the more joy and celebration you will have in the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you can trust that Jesus' work was enough. And the third thing, we have the hope of glory. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In which we rejoice. We'll come back to that word. That word for rejoice, literally, the word is boast. In which we boast. But boast can also be translated exult or to rejoice. It's a great word there. And this is a good translation because when we think boast, we think brag. And it's not exactly what it meant back then. What does it mean to exult? Some of y'all watched football yesterday. <laughs> Exulting is what you'd call excessive celebration. <laughs> ah, right? When the, when the linebacker tackles the quarterback and he's like, ah, all right, and he's pounding his chest. That's exulting. <laughs> In which we exult. See, the thing is, we know what, I'm going to rabbit trail for a second. We know what all these things mean. And we have them in different domains of our lives. We've got to learn to take them and apply them to the church and to the things of God, too. That celebration, that exaltation, it's all got to be brought to the gospel. Because why? We have the hope of glory. Amen. The hope. Remember we read in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now you have the hope of glory in which you rejoice. The glory that we lost is going to be ours. Now, some people want to get snooty here and say that they don't like what the Bible says. Because they say things like, well, no, God gets all the glory and we don't get any glory and we need to make sure that only God gets glory. Okay. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, so when Jesus comes back, then you also will appear with him in glory. You will be glorified with Christ Jesus. God is going to take your body and glorify it. Some of y'all are saying, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> when Christ returns, everything is going to be changed. It says your body, says the, the corruptible must put on incorruption. You must put on something that is never going to be tainted by sin ever again. You're going to be without sin. Imagine being able to live life without sin. Without temptation, without that constant nagging pull to do the stuff you know you're not supposed to do. Praise the Lord. And there's going to be a new heaven. And there's going to be a new earth. And he's going to make you a new man and a new woman. And he's going to glorify you. The Bible says, you will sit with me on my throne. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that. Jesus said you're allowed to do that. Says, you'll sit with me on my throne. You will judge angels, glorified with the Lord. John says, we don't even know what we're going to be when this happens. Not who, what. Because we're going to see God as he is, and no one can see God as he is. So the apostle John goes, I don't really know what this means exactly, but it's going to be great. That's the hope of glory. Not just God's glory, but sharing his glory. Being glorified ourselves. God's taken us, not only, you, you deserved wrath. He's not only not shown you wrath, he's not only also shown you grace, he's gone the complete opposite way and is going to glorify you with his son. 
That's wonderful. And that's a good reason to rejoice, if you ask me. That death is not the end for a Christian. You know something cool? Heaven is not the end either. When we die, the Bible says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. We will be with Christ in heaven. But Jesus is going to come back and make a new earth, and we're going to populate it and fill it and enjoy it forever. We could use that phrase, I think. Heaven is not the end. There's more. There's more to come. The Lord is going to finish up his work on this world, and it says, now that that's all done with, let's, where were we? Oh, that's right, the Garden of Eden. Let's move on from there. That's so awesome. Rejoicing in the hope of glory. So that's those three things. Because of justification by faith, number one, we have peace with God. Your relationship with God has totally changed. You're no longer an enemy. You're now an ally. You're a friend. Number two, you have access into grace. Your day by day is under the favor of God, not the wrath of God. And number three, you have the hope of glory. You have a new destiny that just makes death a necessary hurdle to the next thing. Gospel changes everything, doesn't it? The entire human condition is undone in Christ Jesus. And there are folks that say things like, well, listen, how can I know that this is true and I don't know? We doubt and we're skeptical and we're scientific. Let me just put it out to you this way. Believing those things, whether or not they're true, is enough to change your life. So doesn't that recommend to us that they're probably true? You believe a lie. It doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. But all the Christians who believe these things, they, they have a contempt for death. They have a joy that is above the fray of life. They don't have that existential horror that everybody has. People say, well, you're just not looking at things the right way. No, you're not. You're missing it. You've only got the bad news. I've got good news for you. And the good news changes everything. So if you think Christianity is all about being dour and painful and severe and wor worrisome and furrowing your brow and what's going to, you, you're missing it. It's rejoicing, exulting in the glory that is to come in Christ Jesus. So those are those three things that we have. But look at verse 3. I love it. Not only that. You mean there's more? Oh, yes, there is. Best infomercial of all time. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So we're picking up on that word rejoice here. So then speaking of rejoicing, so he just gave us what you might call a theological or a theoretical description of our life as Christians. All these things are true of us now. But he gives us in verses 3 and 4 a very practical outworking of justification by faith. Yeah, we know all these things to be true, but how does it work in real life? That's how I like to look at the Bible. Like, that's great, but how am I going to live this out? Well, he tells us that we rejoice, which remember means to exult or to boast in our sufferings. That word is flipsis. It means affliction. And the Bible uses that word to mean anything from persecution and being tortured for the gospel to being deprived and, and impoverished and sick, even as to going through emotional anguish. It's a broad word. You might say this can mean any pain of life. Now, some people will lie to you and tell you that to be saved means you'll never have any more problems, no more affliction. Th those people are, are wrong. They're just simply wrong. The Bible is too honest for that. The Bible tells us a lot of amazing things, but it does not tell us anything that is untrue. So it would be really mean for me to stand up here and say, if, you're, if you have problems, well, it's your fault, because Jesus said you're not going to have any more problems. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm not saying you should let it beat you down, but don't, don't come to God and say, I'm sorry, Lord, you know, I lost my job, and, and that must be because I didn't have enough faith. Or, you know, I got sick, it must be because I didn't have enough faith. Don't let anybody put that trip on you. We rejoice in our sufferings, which means you have to have sufferings to rejoice in them. Okay? And we've got this little, this little chain here that he follows. Why? Because you have to ask the question, why would you rejoice in your sufferings? Why would you be happy or boastful or exult in your sufferings? I don't even like it. You use that football analogy again. It drives me nuts. When it's fourth quarter, you're down by 30 points, and some guy gets a sack, and he's like, Rah! it's like, oh, shut up. <laughs> I was the second-string quarterback, and you're losing by 30 points. <laughs> How much worse to say, I rejoice in the things of God. Oh, yes, wow, that's praise the Lord. And I rejoice in my sufferings. Mm. <laughs> I don't know about that one. 
Well, he's going to tell us why. Because number one, suffering produces endurance. The longer you suffer, the stronger you become. So Nietzsche totally ripped off that whole what doesn't kill you makes you stronger thing. Suffering produces endurance. For a Christian, suffering is like going to the gym. It's not fun at the gym, unless you're one of those weird people that, like, this is your favorite thing, right? Lifting that big, heavy thing, it, it hurts, and your body's like, stop it, put it down. That's what all that straining that's happening, right? And, you know, you, you, the next day you're sore, and, you know, you, you got the pain right in here that just kills you, and you go out running, and the next day you can't hardly go down the stairs. And, but the next time you go, maybe the time after the next time, you can do it again, and it's not as hard. And you keep going. And you keep going, and now you're lifting things that you could never even conceive of before, and you're running faster, and you're swimming faster, or whatever it is that you're into. Because why? Because it teaches you. Suffering teaches you to keep going. This is the lesson that Christians learn through suffering. Keep going. For the world, if this life is all you've got, then suffering is the worst possible scenario. I'm blowing my one chance at existence. But for us, we go, no, this is just going to make me stronger. Yes, this is, this is annoying. But you know what? The next time something comes, I'm going to be even more able to endure. I read an author one time. He said, what makes soldiers, or what the, the purpose of boot camp, he said, is to teach soldiers how to be miserable. To teach them that you can be miserable and stay miserable and keep going. And in the same way, that's what the Lord does for us. He allows these sufferings to come in. Whether that is, you're on your way to work and you blow a tire. And then your boss is, is, you know, lecturing you like it was your idea to blow a tire on the way to work. You ever have that happen? Well, I need you here. It's like, well, my car's not starting. I don't know what to tell you, right? Or whether that's something horrific. You know, we're all going through the big coronavirus mess still, kind of. And then, you know, you, whether you're having some sickness that you're trying to deal with or overcome, all of that is strengthening you for the journey. You know, we call the folks that went through the Depression and World War II the greatest generation. Why? Because they knew how to keep going. No matter how bad things got, they said, I made it through that, I can make it through this. And that's what suffering does as a Christian. It teaches you to endure. So when we get through the end of this pandemic, we get a little older, we move on, something else comes, you're like, we made it through that. We can make it through the next one. You go through some terrible relationship that blows up in a million pieces, and you're like, you know what? I made it through that. I'm still here. I'm still going. Suffering produces endurance. Well, what is endurance so important for? Well, endurance produces character. That word for character is dokime. It literally means to be proven or tested. Character. You learn things when you learn to endure suffering, don't you? Have you ever said the most insane thing that people say, which is, I wouldn't trade that horrible episode of my life for anything? You've probably thought that before. And you go, why? Don't you wish you could go back and never have that? And you go, no, because what I learned through that and the person I became because of that, I'm happy for it. That's what it means to be proven. As you endure, that endurance teaches you what kind of person you need to be to keep enduring. And you learn that there are frivolous things you're holding on to that just need to go. Hebrews talks about laying aside every weight and every sin as we try to follow the Lord. And there's things you've got in your life you go, you know what? I made it through that. But you know what would have made it much easier for me to go through that? If I didn't complain so much. I'm going to stop complaining. All right, I'm going through this. Now you're not a complainer. The next time you go through it, it's a little bit easier. And you're setting an example for people. You're proven. You're shaped into Christ's image. You know, I, I like to use the example sometimes because it makes folks uncomfortable, but also because I love it. You know, the early desert fathers, the first monks in the Christian church, they went out to the desert to be deprived, to, be, to do spiritual discipline all the time, fasting all the time, late night vigils all the time, reading the scriptures all the time, no temptation, although they will be the first ones to tell you that temptation follows you into the desert. If you read some of their writings, it's really interesting. But what were they, what were they saying here? They're saying, I'm going to master the body, because it will aid me in mastering the spirit. If I can learn to suffer and endure, this will teach me that if I can control the body, I can also control my attitude. I can control the way that I talk to people. If I'm more judicious in what I say and don't say very much, the next time I say, I'm not going to fly off the handle. I'm not going to lose my temper. It produces character. 
When you've gone through things and if you've let them do their work, and you're, you're going to be a different person and a better person for it. When somebody who's been through something horrible starts to speak, you all just kind of sit back and we listen, don't we? Because we know they've got something to say. And that character produces hope. Hope. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. If you endure suffering and allow God to make you holy through that process, you know, I went through that thing and through that, I, I learned not to lose my temper with people. Through that, I learned that the booze was just making it worse and I don't get drunk anymore. Through that situation, I learned that this person was only making my life worse and I had the strength of character to finally say no more and now things are better. If you go through that process, why do you get hope? Because it proves to you that you are in fact saved. How do you know that you're saved? What happens to you when you go through trials? If you come out the other side looking just a little bit more like Jesus, that can only happen by the Holy Spirit. A Christian is never broken by suffering. We're built by suffering. Just like Jesus Christ was built through suffering. We're going to read that verse later. You're being prepared for God's kingdom. The suffering the Lord is using to shape you and mold you. And once you know that, when you go through suffering and you realize, wait a minute, I'm becoming a better person through this process. I'm loving Jesus more. I'm committed to church. You know, I wasn't able to go to church for long months, and now you're never getting me out of that place. Okay, I learned something here, right? I learned that. And you go, that tells me that God's working on me. And if God's working on me, then I must be saved. And that's hopeful, isn't it? When you know that God's working, and you can kind of see it happening, I'll tell you an example. When I was working for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, some of you all don't know, but I worked, you know, hauling junk for a little more than a year. And, you know, uh, not very much fun, to say. It wasn't a, a whole lot of um, enjoyment there. But I remember, you know, having one, one moment where Catlin and I were talking, and I was having a moment because I was like, listen, I'm, I'm doing this. And what it was really getting me at this point was, I, you know, I went to school, I got my degree, I had this great job that I worked in, in Lynchburg, and then I left, and this is now, if I ever wanted to go do something else, there's this big hole in my resume. I see you drove a junk truck. What happened? What happened to you? you it was going great, and then it kind of fell off, and I'm like, you know, I, I've completely derailed the trajectory of where my career could have gone. And we just kind of sat there and just go having a moment. Kind of like, this is kind of a heavy thing to, to hold on to. But then I realized, you know what this means? I said something to the extent, I've kind of like given up what my life could have been. And I go, oh, Jesus said something about that. <laughs> Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he says that we've got to die to ourselves daily. And then it just clicked in my brain. Go, oh, this is what he meant. He meant dying to yourself, meaning giving up what your life could have been for what God has told you to do. And once I knew that, I was okay. Because I knew what that was, but I had to connect abiding in Christ and dying to yourself with my life. And once that connection was made, I realized God's working on me. God's making me into the kind of man he needs me to be. And that put hope in my heart. I must be saved. Unsaved people don't come through their suffering with a greater appreciation of God. They come out the other side mad at God. So when you come through that and your character is being formed, you go, wow, God is really there. Which is why James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Similar kind of passage. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A Christian is not mastered by his suffering. He is strengthened by it. He's hardened by it. He's sharpened by it. Early in church history, when there were those terrible persecutions from Diocletian and some of the other emperors, those that had been, they, they still refer to them all as martyrs. We use them now to exclusively mean dead uh, Christians, but if somebody had been tormented, had their arm chopped off or their eye gouged out or their skin flayed for Jesus and had not denied him, th th you can't break people like that. If they've already been through it and come out the other side, are you going to intimidate a guy like that? You've gone through the most harrowing experience of your life and you come out the other side and you've only been strengthened in Christ Jesus. The devil's going to call up your demon and say, would you stop it? Every time you tempt him, he gets stronger. We're, we're trying to win a war here. Now, does this just say that we're going to be happy every time we go through bad times? Not necessarily. Jesus wasn't. Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and he wept. 
Jesus was about to go to the cross, knowing everything that was about to happen, including his own resurrection. And he was so nervous, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood and said, Lord, is there any other way? So no, I'm not going to sit here and tell you you've got to be singing zippity-doo-dah through your hard times. But you have a heavenly perspective on, on suffering. And hard times, whether it's a coronavirus and then the government shut down, or whether it's your own life and your own personal struggles, we've got to have a heavenly look at that. Because too many believers use suffering as an excuse to sin. I don't know why we do this sometimes. That when something bad is happening to us, we treat it like an excuse to act out. Well, you just don't know what I'm going through. That's why I'm allowed to talk this way. That's why I can rant and rave about God on Facebook. And that's why I can blow off church and be mean to all my Christian friends. And, well, you know, I was just going through some stuff. That's not how we do it as Christians. We lean into the suffering because it makes us more like Jesus Christ. Especially persecution, I might add. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and call you all kinds of evil things for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Which means some of us got to have an attitude adjustment about the op-eds that are being written about evangelical Christians this day, don't we? Ah, me too. Wow. For all people want to want to yap about how this is the worst generation ever, we've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in that, can't we? And do we rejoice that rejoice that the country or the the culture, or whatever, is becoming more hostile to the faith? No. We can rejoice in the fact that, wow, I'm actually being identified with Christ by the world, and they hate me for it. Jesus said to rejoice in that. Hebrews 2, verse 10 says, It was fitting that he, meaning Jesus, by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus Christ became everything that he is to us now, meaning the one that is able to save, and and our, our high priest, and our mercy seat, and all those things, through the suffering of the cross. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, therefore, why are you so afraid to suffer? Don't you know that God's going to use it to make you who he wants you to be? It teaches you to endure, thereby shaping your character and giving you hope as you see the process. So not only did we, verses 1 and 2, have all these spiritual realities that are true, we also have an entirely different outlook on the day-to-day pain and suffering of life because of justification by faith. Amen? Well, let's read verse 5 now, and we'll come to the end. Speaking of hope, which character produces, hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, some older translations had, and our hope does not disappoint. Over time, the word disappoint for us has, has kind of softened. This is a word referring to shame, being shamed. And in that culture, shame was a big deal. For us, we say, no shame, and you know, don't let anybody shame you. Back then, shame was a big deal. The question is, how do we know that all this hope we have isn't just going to make us leaving, feeling foolish at the end when none of it pans out? Isn't it kind of sad and a little hilarious when you see somebody that's got a, election stickers on the back of their car from the losing candidate? It's like, oh, come on, buddy, take them off. Don't, don't. Bob Dole lost. I'm sorry. It's time to, it's time to move on, right? Every time, it doesn't matter if the person has like half a percent of the vote. The next president of the United States, like that guy's not president of anything. Hope, that disappoints. That puts us to shame, right? And Paul says, well, how do we know that this whole Christian thing is not, is not that? Well, the only way we know that, he says, is by the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit who speaks to us of God's love. This just got real mystical, didn't it? But it's wonderful. John 16, let me read you this passage where Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is at the Last Supper, before he ascended. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus ascended to heaven, and one of the reasons he gave in the book of John was so that he could send the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer. I don't think he indwells me. Well, if you're a believer, yes, he does. We're going to read in Romans 8, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have Christ. His job is to bring God to you. 
used to be you had to go to where God was. You had to go to the temple. You had to go to the tabernacle. And you, depending on your status, you're a Gentile, you could only go so far. If you're a Jewish woman, you could only go so far. If you're a Jewish man, you could only go so far. If you're a priest, you could only go this far. If you're the high priest, you could only go there once a year. And that's where God was. But the Lord tells us that the Lord does not dwell in temples made with hands, but that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit dwells within you. He's there to communicate the will of God, the voice of God, and especially in this passage, the heart of God. The everlasting love of God is being spoken to and confirmed to you by God's Holy Spirit. That's a pretty radical thing, isn't it? To think that God dwells within you and he speaks to you. This, by the way, is one of the most Trinitarian passages in the book of Romans. The Father sent His Son, and now the Holy Spirit testifies of the Father's love that was demonstrated through the Son. But I'm not going to get into that anymore today. Paul repeatedly holds up the Holy Spirit's work as pretty much the only confirmation of certain things that we have to take by faith. It's kind of important that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 19, verse 2, Paul met some disciples and he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You kind of got this attitude that says, all right, double check in and see if y'all are really saved or not. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they hadn't. And so Paul went through that whole process, baptized them and laid hands on them, and they were filled with the Spirit. It's a big deal. One of the first questions Paul asked people. Because back then, you know, you, you, you would meet people from all over the place. Letters were slow. You didn't really know where somebody was from. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 says, My preaching was not in plausible words of wisdom. Meaning Paul did not sit there, these amazing rhetorical crafted messages like the one I'm giving right now. He just messaged. That was great. That was like a double wave of laughter there. Some of y'all got it and then somebody else got it. That was, that was good. He's saying, but it was by the demonstration of the spirit and power so that your hope might not rest in the words of men, but in the power of God. God says, or Paul says, I'd rather give a weak message and then see the spirit work in people then give an amazing message with no work of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 3, verse 5, he's preaching to them and says, how do you know that my gospel is the right gospel? He says, well, look at all the things that the Spirit's doing in your midst. That the Spirit was doing miracles among you and signs and wonders among you before you ever heard of this Judaizing nonsense. It's only by faith. The Bible emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't know if I've ever experienced that. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a time Usually in a prayer service or a worship service, I've found, but it could be during a sermon or just in the car when you're thinking about God, where you've just been overwhelmed by the love of God for you. Where it just has, it, we, we use that phrase, fallen upon you. It's like it's pressing down on you. And you just know that God loves me. And you just can't fathom that God loves you. And maybe you broke down weeping. Or maybe you stood up and shouted. Some people even talk about how they, they were shaking because they couldn't believe that God loved me this much. You ever had that experience? That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And He's always speaking to you. But like we sang this morning, let us experience the glory. Let us become more aware. We want to have those moments with God. That is what the Spirit does. He assures us that what we believe is true by communicating God's love. And I'll tell you, I've been filled with the Spirit many times. And every single time, it's the love of God that fills my heart. I can't get over the fact that God loves me. Because when you're alone and you're dry spiritually, that's what you worry about, isn't it? Does God really love me? But when you're in the Spirit and you're worshiping and you're in the Word and you're in prayer, you just know. And there's nobody that can tell you any different. So the question becomes, how can I know the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a lot of ways that we could talk about this, but there's one that I want to focus on that I think ties into this passage. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, Paul tells us, Be filled with the Spirit. How? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I love that when he talks about being filled with the Spirit, he immediately starts talking about worship and thanksgiving and prayer. The only way, other than asking, that the Bible tells us to maintain a relationship with the Holy Spirit is through worship, prayer, and thanksgiving, especially through singing. 
There's some connection between the Holy Spirit and worship music singing in the Bible. There is a time where the kings came to Elisha, the prophet, and they said, we want to know what the word of the Lord is. And he says, bring me a harp and begin to play. And as the music played, the spirit fell upon Elisha and he began to prophesy. Very often in the Old Testament, when they come across groups of prophets, they're singing and they're worshiping and they're playing instruments. And there's an instance where Saul heard the music and when he heard the music, the spirit fell upon him too. There's a connection there. Why do you think when we sing and we celebrate and we worship that that's when you have that connection with the spirit? We could talk there and get into a theology of what music is. What does it do? It stirs your heart. It stirs your mind. It engages your body through singing and through noise and connects it with your Holy Spirit or with your spirit and the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. Worship, singing, prayer, rejoicing. That's what he's talking about. We rejoice. And I want to specifically apply that to the acts of prayer and worship. We were talking about this morning that those theologian types don't much care for worship in the church. Don't much care for singing. We don't care for music. But the Lord insists upon it. And he says, be filled with the Spirit. He immediately says, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3, verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Ah, see, that, that's what I'm warranted. I'm warranted in the word of Christ and the, the teaching in the Bible. But that passage then immediately goes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. How do you know that the Word of God is doing its work in you? If there's psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs coming out of you. Whether you've written them or not, it's just that song of praise that God puts in your heart. It's not good for us to separate these two things. Doctrine over here, worship over here. Study over here, singing over here. It all needs to work together. And if it's doing its work, it's all going to overflow. If you want to have assurance of salvation, you've got to have communion with the one who can assure you. And that's the Holy Spirit. And one of the best ways the Bible tells us to do that is to sing to the Lord. The biggest book in the Bible is the songbook. And sometimes we read it like it's not a songbook. And this cracks me up because I'll read these commentaries and, you know, some of these things are... You know, they're written by Christian nerds. You know, like, they're, they're writing these things because they went to school for too many years, and this is kind of what they do, right? And they're breaking it down, and it just, like, it's cringy sometimes. Like, well, I'm not sure why he repeats this so many times. What is he trying to teach? Mike? because it's a song. You repeat things in songs. It's like, whoa, what is he trying to do? I'm like, it, probably because it was sung there. It's like, well, why does this verse come randomly in the middle of it? I'm like, because it's probably like a call and answer thing. The guys are singing this part, and here come the ladies, and they're singing. And you read through those psalms. We do one every week. Some stuff's in there that we're like, I don't know if we should be singing that. What would you think if I said, guys, got a new song for you today? And the, the chorus goes, God, why have you abandoned me? Some of y'all going, I'm sitting down. I'm not part of this. But that's right out of the Bible. The Lord can handle the overwhelming abundance of emotion that we have. And if we want to extract emotion from salvation as somehow evil, you're missing it. God didn't, God didn't subdivide you. This is the intellect, and this is the spirit, and this is the emotion. No, you are one thing, and it all works together. And some of y'all need the opposite lesson. Some of y'all are like, yeah, awesome. Like, and you need to read your Bible more. <laughs> we all must be filled with the Holy Spirit, the working of the Word. It's the Spirit who inspired the Word. And through the celebration and rejoicing and exulting in God's church. Jesus said in John chapter 7, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me, and out of his heart will come rivers of living water. What does that mean? It says he spoke of the Spirit who was to come. Rivers of living water. S.M. Lockridge once said that sophistication is sucking the life out of our religion. And every now and then I sit back and I go, he's kind of right. So let's, let's wrap this up here. Because of justification by faith, you have a new status before God which affects the way we view the hardships of life. And we know that because of the love of God by the Holy Spirit. We've seen this interplay of head and heart. We had all this theology, weeks and weeks of doctrine, and sometimes not even very much fun doctrine. But that's all building the Romans chapter 5, which is this big celebration. If you say, oh, I love to worship, I love to sing, I love to praise God, then you need sound doctrine in your heart. Because then, you know, we sang that song this morning, right? 
is exceeding, abundant, more than we could ask or think. We need a miracle. Now, if you're, if you're not sure if that's what the Bible teaches, you sing that and you go, I don't know if we're allowed to sing that. But if you know that, in fact, that's exactly what the Bible has said, that the Bible says that you come to the Lord and he will give you exceedingly, abundantly, more than you could ever ask or think through the power that is at work within you. When Jesus said, you will do the things I've done and greater works than I've done. You hear that song and you can just lift your hands and say, yes, Lord. And if all you've got is theology, you've got to learn to give it some life. You've got to learn to celebrate and sing and pray and take that truth that you know and let it make its way from your head down to your heart. The Holy Spirit teaches us. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit also inspires praise. How many times does the Bible say, sing to the Lord a new song? The Lord's like, I'm doing new stuff. Write some new songs. Has God changed? No, but we have. And we're keeping a record of what God has done. Praise enlivens theology and theology informs our praise. So y'all, are you experiencing these things? All this that we talked about this morning, does this sound at all familiar to your life? If not, then maybe you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about being a Christian. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about have you, as an act of your will, said, I am going to believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was enough and commit my whole life to serving him. Because he died so that he might reconcile you to God. And he rose again in victory for you and for me. And if you have believed on all that, then you have one of two things that you need to do. Number one, you need to take the time to understand what your Bible teaches so that you do not get tossed about in your worship and in your prayer, but in fact you are grounded, which gives them greater strength. Or number two, you need to let the knowledge you've already got inspire praise and prayer and worship and exaltation before the Lord. Is this going to look the same way for everybody? No. But let's use one more football analogy since it's October here. There are some folks that, you know, they come to church and they're like, well, this is a time to be somber and be quiet and just kind of keep it all buttoned up. And you say, well, you know, hey, let's clap our hands. Let's raise our hands. You go, well, I'm not, I'm not really that kind of person. But then you go to the game. First down, yeah! Touchdown, yeah! Hands go up, clapping the hands, shouting, celebrating, bumping elbows with the guy next to you. You've got to learn to take some of that and apply it to something that's more important than football. Give me a break. What the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And you say, well, that's not the, the tradition I grew up in. Then learn to grow in that. Are you ever going to be way up here? Maybe not. But if this is your limit, the Lord wants to bring you up here. And if you're always up here and you don't understand the depth of pondering and meditating and seeking the Lord, then God wants to stretch you that way too. We need to have a knowledge of God that is not just factual, but is experiential and is passionate and worshipful and zealous. Because we all must rejoice in our salvation. Because as Nehemiah told the people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So if we need strength to move on in this journey, let's rejoice in the truth.